0: I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker.
1: Radio Drone. No tears on a Thursday night. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Cecil T. Robot. Bah, humbug. Wrong time of year, but fine. Alex Jowski. (laughs) Hello. I don't even want to know the backstory of that. And we have a special guest tonight, considering what our topic is. We have Darren Orange, the director of What's Your Pleasure?, an interesting Hellraiser short film for this, the Hellraiser Retrospective.
2: Hi, I'm a director who uh, produced uh, and directed uh, What's Your Pleasure, and I also produced to produce some other feature films, uh, including inspectors and stuff like that. And I'm glad to be here tonight, and I'd love to have this company of awesome people. I'm looking forward to talk about the awesome pleasures that we hope to ensue upon
3: all of you with our short film. Speaking of pleasures, Cecil, Adam and Eve! Oh, God damn it. <laughs> um... If you go to the promo, or if you go to AdamandEve.com and use the promo code DROME, uh, you will get three free DVDs, a free mystery gift, a free thingamajig that I'm totally blanking on. 50% off
1: off off a single single item item and free U.S.
3: shipping. And free U.S. shipping, all for using the promo code of DROME at AdamandEve.com. 50%
4: 50% isn't even a free thingamajig, it's just a half of a free thingamajig.
3: <laughs> you still have to pay for a half of that thing. But you
1: do get another free thingamajig that's a mystery gift. So tonight we're going to be talking about the Hellraiser franchise. The funny thing is it shouldn't even have been a franchise. Let's actually start before Hellraiser. Before Hellraiser, Clive Barker had had some, oh, how do I put this, issues with working in hollywood he had written rawhead Rex, which was a complete and utter train wreck he had written transmutations or the movie that became transmutations which was a complete and utter wreck so he was sick of seeing his his stories butchered when they came to film so he wrote this novella called the hellbound heart in 1986 specifically with the purpose of then turning it into his directorial debut not counting his student films of Hellraiser. The book, honestly, for something that was written for the screen, differs quite substantially from the movie. What are your thoughts first on Hellraiser just as a standalone film?
2: So as Hellraiser, I think the the key element was the amoral aspects that was part of the movie. I mean, a lot of it had to do with a character which was inherently corrupt, finding their greatest desire and then being disrupted by that and finding they didn't want that and then bringing about even greater evil as a result. So as far as the amoral caricature that I thought Hellraiser was, I think it was a critical piece of the storytelling. It made the characters, the Cenobites, not the villains, but someone that was simply trying to take away the evil in our world and let them suffer the consequences of their desires. I think it's a fundamentally awesome piece of the story, and that was what made the original film great.
4: The first Hellraiser movie is a standalone film. I like it. I liked the book better, and I didn't know that the book was written specifically to become a movie. Now I have to look at it again to see what was going on. The first one, it's a great horror film. It's very original, and that's what I liked about it when I first watched it, because it was really not like anything else at the time.
3: I think as a standalone film, it's fantastic. the The look of it is is so unique, and just the feel of it is so different. Especially when you consider it's something that came out in nineteen eighty seven. It was so dark and weird, and really polished for a movie that absolutely, positively would never resonate with a mainstream audience. I mean, the themes that they had alone were something that, uh, as we're finding out today, studios are just having trouble recognizing the fact that we can get that out there what well, we're going to have these essentially demons that come through to our plane of existence and they want to make it pg-13 like the the whole concept alone is something that you have to do at the very least r-rated especially coming from clive barker remember
1: clive essentially and i'm boiling it down here essentially pitched this movie as snm demons come to earth and that is boiling it down, but kind of is dead on too, isn't it?
3: It really is. There's no better way to describe them.
1: Because to me, when I look at the first film, just as the first film, it doesn't play so much as a horror film or even an exploitation film. It plays almost like like a niche film for the hard, hardcore s and pleasure and pain audience which is what Clive essentially was speaking to that just plays with horror film tropes and the novella was somewhat like that I gotta disagree with you on something Cecil though I think this film did hit an audience by the sheer fact that not only did Pinhead get his name from how this film caught on but also the fact that we're even talking about the franchise that came from this film I think I'm not so sure that this
3: was a fluke that it was a hit. You know what I mean, Cecil? Well, uh, I don't mean that it, it wasn't a hit. But I'm saying it was more along the lines of a very, it is one of the larger cult hits. But this was never going to be a $200 million franchise. This was going to be a movie that back in 87, you know, if you had a movie that raked in double its production value. Actually, uh, this
1: raked in 14 times. It had a million dollar budget made just under $15 So ballpark, it made 14 times its budget. Not bad.
3: Oh, absolutely not bad. But nowadays, uh, you know, the the budget for this would probably be something more like 50 million and it wouldn't look quite as good and if it didn't make at least a hundred million it would be considered a, actually if it made a hundred million, it would still be considered a flop this was that magical time where you could make a movie for a million and a half dollars that looks this good and have it uh, only open in a few theaters uh, I mean this wasn't back when they opened in 3,000 theaters this was probably opened in like a couple hundred theaters and ran for like a year or something and did very well like I it got major word of mouth, which is kind of what helped it go, you know, keep going.
4: I think it hit mainstream simply because of how original it was. In 1986, we were just getting out of the slasher boom, so anything that wasn't a slasher was going to spark some interest at this point. So you get this movie that's about, you know, has described S and M demons from another plane. It's quite original, quite good. And I think that's another reason that it was a success because, you know, it's still f***ing good.
2: The the movie itself, don't forget the key element of the description of angels to some, right? I mean, the angels element is key. These characters are not villains. So at the end of the day, you had the ability to like them and appreciate them because the real villain was Frank. And honestly, you had the ability to appreciate what they brought to the table. And if you have that ability to really like these characters and what they mean and what they stand for against things as terrible as what Frank stood for, they're the lesser evil. They become angels. Get rid of this terribleness. And I think that that's a key element in why people started to love it and appreciate it. And honestly, even though we're not there yet, why the mainstreaming started to take away the magical element of what made Hellraiser so great.
1: And the first Hellraiser also ran into its share of production problems, most of which I don't see on the screen. For instance, Clive, being so inexperienced as a director, he didn't realize that you need room to add lights and move a camera. So they, the house, the Cotton's house in this, is a real house. And they didn't realize that with real walls and real living dimensions, it was almost impossible to get a camera, the lights, and the actors all in the same room and actually give any perception of depth, which, if you watch the film, makes everything seem more claustrophobic. I think that production problem actually helped the film inadvertently. And then you've got the whole thing that Andrew Robinson and Clive Barker hated one another on the set. It was nonstop fighting. Those two, there are some stories that they actually had to be pulled apart a few times. I can't tell that Andrew Robinson did not want to be in this movie. Can
2: you? To me, the most impressive film I've seen recently had limit, like huge restrictions on light. had to be My Bloody Valentine, the remake of that. So they were shooting in real, real minds. They had no control. The lighting in that was fantastic. I think a lot of times restrictions and limitations on production induces creativity. I'm mean, not at all comparing the two films, but I'm simply saying that as far as the DP goes, when you have to limit them or control them, they come up with creative things. And that element is, is definitely very, very much so there in the first Hellraiser film with how they handle the lighting. An amazing representation of how to do that in that era. And that's why I think it stands out as far as cinematography goes. That conflict, I don't think that I see it to be honest with you I don't think I see it at all I think I if the conflict was there it I honestly it could have helped the film I don't I don't see it in the final product personally
3: I agree with you totally because of the fact that they were shooting in a real location I mean I've shot some stuff in real locations and it's ugh, you know you really have to just squeeze things in and make it work and the fact that he was able to make this stuff work and make it feel so claustrophobic that absolutely made it more beneficial it made the film much more in your face and it just gave it more of an uncomfortable feeling because it was so like right up on people's faces and right up in their you know per- their personal space you know like just ugh. It-, it worked so well so that's a case of ended up working in their favor as far as the fighting I never would have known. If I had never heard that, I'd have no idea. I would think that uh, everything was was great because it doesn't show up on screen.
1: All right. We ran into a technical problem with Alex's mic. So it'll be just Cecil, Darren and I, I guess, and unless we can get that fixed. So Hellraiser was a it was a pretty good success. 14 times its budget, not bad. And then, of course, you factor in video. Holy crap, that that made it so much better. It only took him a year to make the second film, Hellbound Hellraiser 2. Now, this one, Clive, he's not really involved. He came up with the story, but he didn't write the script. He didn't direct it. He produced it, but not executive produced it. And while he is happy with what Tony Randall did with Hellraiser 2, he says it's not the sequel he would have made. Now, I don't know if that means something good or something bad. I personally think Hellraiser 2 is one of the better sequels out there. I think it actually one-ups the first film, in scope at least. I enjoy Hellraiser 2.
3: I actually like Hellraiser 2 more than Hellraiser. It's one of those rare instances where, for me anyway, I think the sequel is better than the original. It's hard to say because the, the original is so good and so groundbreaking. And so unique. But the second one, they just expanded the scope so much, and it just felt way more grandiose. And I I just really have a soft spot for it. I've always loved it.
2: The only sequel that is better than
3: Hellbound,
2: Hellraiser 2, is Dawn of the Dead, Romero's original sequel to Night of the Living Dead. So, in that being said, I think it's one of the top shelf best sequels there is i mean people say well hellraiser i haven't seen that well i tell people watch one and two but you're gonna really probably appreciate two. and that's one of the things that keeps telling like you gotta you gotta see a little bit of diversity and i've seen it over and over again people keep talking about hellraiser 2 hellraiser 2 it's like well yeah it's good it gives you it tells you a lot about this world and maybe clive wasn't expecting every detail to get explained and this and that but honestly tony's work in that I might be biased. It's phenomenal. I mean, the the step up it has, the dynamics, the continuation of the story, it works as a sequel. It's it's maybe, as I said, maybe challenging Dawn of the Dead as for the best horror sequel ever, in my opinion. Okay, I don't agree with you on that part, but <laughs> I, I, I think it,
1: in a way, it gave the audience what they were looking for. Because, and I'm not necessarily sure this is a good thing, because one of the things that that people latched onto from the first film were the Cenobites, who have a relatively small amount of screen time when you really get down to it. I know Pinhead's on the poster, and they're in all the advertising. They're in maybe 15 total minutes of the 90-minute movie. I think this sequel kind of started to head in the wrong direction by going, no, 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 these guys are the stars. Not Frank and Julia, not Kirsty. these guys are the stars. I'm not so sure that was the right direction to go in the long run. At this point, not so bad. In the long run, I see this was the start of
2: some bad stuff down the line. That if it wasn't for the audience's reaction, the problem is that that, that studios so often want to please the audience. And if you don't have a good balancing system for that, you end up kind of going down a bad road. We've seen that with lots of great series, speaking of which, like, for example, Jurassic Park even. I'll use that as a good example because we saw how bad the third film was. But the idea is you want to create something that people are going to like. The, the thought was that in the original sequel, right, in Hellbound, that it wasn't going to be Ben Penhead taking over. Penhead was going to become a character that, that you could prove that they can come about and become something better than what they were. And I think the, the canon that was created from that was better, coincidentally, than the actual story they ended up with at the end of the film because you were limited based upon what the audience wanted and what the studios wanted grand there's there's other elements to that too
3: he you're right on uh i think that the studios sometimes will pander to the audience a little too much or they'll give them what they think that they want and in this case yeah they did uh kind of push a little bit more of the cenobites uh i thought it i thought it worked uh, i thought this was a case of where it was cool because they did show them a little more and they didn't really show them that much that it took away from some of the mysticism. There still was a lot of the characters uncovering what the Cenobites were, and then they kind of would show up from time to time. The later movies was when they really started to lose focus and may, wanted to make them into, uh, like, slasher characters as opposed to these, you know, behind-the-scenes characters that were controlling things. They did have some interesting things that they
1: did. Like, we get to see what those, the, our four main Cenobites were like before they were Cenobites. One of them being, like, a... 12 to 14 year old boy that tells me okay there's another interesting story in how he became one but also the fact does anyone else notice that they ignored the very ending of the first film in this one where the big winged demon flew out of the fire none of that's ever addressed again in any film in the franchise do you think that was a good idea or a bad idea
3: Uh, i think they couldn't really figure out what direction they wanted to go with that. So uh, there's been a lot of movies where they'll start the sequel and just eh, they'll gloss over a few things that you know may or may not have happened. So I, I think that it was probably for the best that they just decided to not put that in the film.
2: The key element with the big wing demon was the fact that it was meant to mean something more. The idea was they couldn't utilize it in the sequel. It was meant to showcase there's more to this world than we know. I think that we read too much into it. We start getting caught up. Obviously, there's a lot of elements that that honestly you could tell through a comic book or et cetera. There's been stories told about what these things are, these vagabonds, right? These uh, uh, vagrants that, that, that protect the the, uh, the, the Le Mâchant configuration or the cube or however you want to call it, the Pandora's box, that protect them. But the problem I see all the time is that no one cares about them ever. And we... we more people focused on the story of how the box got made, how who's protecting it, why does it matter. They should have resolved that conflict early on in the sequel, because then you would have had a, more, a, a greater appreciation for why this person cared so much. The comic books, I think that they tell a great story.
1: And in the comics, we have to remember that this is kind of like what the Aliens franchise was, that the comics were continuity in the Aliens franchise until Alien 3 decided to throw those away. Then they weren't. That's the way the Hellraiser comics were. After Hellraiser 2, they made the comics, which were, these are the sequels and or prequels to this. Clive was still in control of, of the franchise at this point, and it's not until Hellraiser 3 that they pulled the Alien 3 and said, yeah, yeah all that stuff established in the comics didn't happen. We, we, we want to go a different direction, especially with 4. Hellraiser 2, it didn't do as well. It it had a larger budget and only made $12 million, so it wasn't as financially successful as the first film. On top of that, it got quite a few of the reviews were negative, which was not so much of the first film. So it's kind of surprising that this film did eventually get a sequel, although I think that was due to New World was going bankrupt at this point, and Miramax, probably for next to nothing, was able to pick up the rights. And then they made yeah i'm gonna say it what i think is the worst film in the whole franchise 1992's hellraiser 3 hell on earth which is just a horrendous film on every level for a film of the of the budget that it was the special effects were incredibly shoddy the characters needed three dimensions added to them just to be one dimensional characters. The makeup effects were terrible. The, the Cenobites, the new Cenobites, were so laughable they almost came across like a Saturday Night Live parody of what Cenobites
3: would be. And. You shut up. Camerahead's awesome.
1: Camerahead, CD <laughs> head, drink mixer. tracheotomy these were terrible horrible Cenobites. and then you've got an actress i really like paula marshall she was 28 when she made this movie her character i think is supposed to be about 18 and it's embarrassing watching an almost 30 year old woman pretend to be an 18 year old because her performance is exactly a 30 year old woman pretending to be 18 I was embarrassed for poor Paula Marshall when I was watching this movie for this retrospective again. Plot makes no sense. It pisses away everything that the second film did. They clearly were shooting on, I don't know where, where their budget went, because like, when Dax is running down the street and there's all these cars exploding, you clearly see all these people in the background just walking dogs and everything like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, they're filming a movie over there. It's like, this movie was terrible.
2: Josh, I have to, I got to introduce this idea. So the idea here, honestly, was the fact that it threw a cannon. The problem is the cannon, why it was thrown, away was not explained. That's its inherent problem. If you could solve that issue, which it never did. Then you'd have a great, you'd have a good story. Like, why can this spontaneously create these Cenobites Like, why is this happening? Like, I don't I get it. It's like weird. But uh, Camerahead's cool and awesome. Both uh, we'll agree. We'll totally agree on that. He's cool. But the like how he got there isn't very cool or exciting. Why Chenard got there was a great story. How he got there. And honestly, that's the problem with the third film, is that we didn't understand what was happening and why it was happening. It was just a bunch of hodgepodge ideas to sell an, an idea
0: without fi- any also care. Also the
1: characters. There are no characters. For, for instance, we get Doc, the cameraman that becomes camera head. The, the way the music swells when we see him and what it turned in, we're supposed to feel bad and be like, Oh my god, they did that to Doc! Oh my god! You mean that guy... Who's had five lines of dialogue?
2: Well, we why don't care. Why am supposed to care? We don't care. We can't because there's no setup to the transition for him to become that. There's no build up towards that. So why yeah. could we ever care? That's the biggest problem. We well, don't care the about these problem, characters. The biggest problem is this was the beginning
1: of Pinhead, the slasher villain. He literally just comes to Earth and just massacres an entire nightclub full of people, and then just starts killing people out on the street for no reason. Just like like a Michael Myers or a Jason Voorhees would. Also, as you pointed out, throwing out the canon, because it was established in both the first and second film, the Cenobites are there acting on behalf of those who have the desire to have called them. That's why they didn't take Tiffany in the second film. Even though she was the one who solved the box, she didn't call them. She had no desire for it. Now... They're just massacring whoever happens to be walking down the street. It's ridiculous. And then Cenobites have to be made again from desire. They're just taking random people and going, Hey you, you were a DJ, so you're now a CD Cenobite.
3: This movie was just terrible. I know you hate it. Uh, I, I don't think that it is a terrible movie. And it's fine. I understand. You have a lot of valid points. I don't... It just... It doesn't bother me. I think that it definitely should have done a better job of explaining things and it should have shown okay well this is why he is now killing all these people even though all these people had nothing to do with opening up the the lament configuration they just happened to be there when it happened and it did go against canon. it did change a lot of things it did bug me but it was okay like i don't hate it like you do, like I, I think for me personally, uh, I'm torn. Uh, probably, I think four or six are probably my least favorites. This one, it's a shame because I think that they, um, I think that Anthony Hickox had better intentions with it because he's he's done good movies before. Been the, coasting on Sundown and Waxworks for years. Whatever, but they, they, they did that right before this. I think that this was simply Miramax wanted to make this, you know, make him the new slasher guy. And... That's the
1: problem, Cecil. This well, was the I... mainstreaming of the franchise. You've got music video tie-ins. Doug Bradley appeared on three separate late-night talk shows as Pinhead. He appeared on MTV's Spring Break as Pinhead. You're starting to see the action figures and T-shirts this was the mainstreaming of a franchise that was part of the problem is right. but so that's also the, mar-
2: the idea is like the combination of characters, right? The element that we lost in it, like that piece to tell why he's here. And the whole story was all about fixing that problem. Why he's a chaos piece, but we didn't, there wasn't enough time for that. Right? Like that's the piece. I think that you could talk a lot about like the earlier story with how we had this great character of Spencer, who wants to fix this terrible ripped character who's going to kill everyone, he's got to come back together again. That's the piece that no one cared about in that story. No one focused on. I think you could talk a lot about how that was. Important. No one gave any canon to that.
3: Yeah, they they didn't they didn't give it a chance. And I mean, and that could come down to uh, what the studio wanted. You know, they decide, I mean, it could there could have been additional stuff that was shot that maybe did flesh things out, maybe did explain things more. But the studio wanted to streamline more and get to the big killing scene where they dumped a good portion of the budget into.
1: I also want to point out quick, actually, Lawrence's, quote, cameo in this. Now, I've heard conflicting stories. I've heard that she came back because they drove a dump truck full of money up to her house for this cameo. And I've also heard that her cameo, and this is very believable, too, was actually just a deleted scene from part two that they reused without having to pay her again.
2: I think I can find out shortly, but I think that she probably didn't shoot something new. I think they probably filmed that in part two, to be honest with you.
3: More than likely, it was uh, additional footage from part two. I I, I hated it. I, I just I hated every second of this,
1: and I hated it back in '92 when I first saw it, and I have not seen it again since until last week. I actually think I hated it more rewatching it than my memories. I think my, my fuzzy memories of hating it. I still liked it a little bit better before rewatching it. This is one of those movies that rewatching it actually hurts the film even more for me. This film was unfortunately successful. It did spawn, like I said, the music videos, and this was, you know, Pinhead entering pop culture, not just entering parts of culture, but entering pop culture itself. And then you had Hellraiser Bloodline, which was the last theatrical film directed by Kevin Yager, Alan Smithy, and Joe Chappelle, that was a a step in the right direction, a step in the wrong direction. Because... Darren, as you pointed out, 3 decided to kick Cannon off to the side and not explain anything. Hellraiser Bloodline kind of went too far. They overcompensated in the wrong direction and said, no, now we're going to explain everything. And I think that was the part of Hellraiser Bloodline that didn't work just conceptually. The entire film is essentially, here's what 1, 2, and 3 mean. Is that really how you do a cap-off? Again, just like Friday the 13th, the final chapter, this was meant to be the last film in the franchise.
2: that uh, It set up a lot of interesting things. I mean, it, it helped re-inspire interest in the storyline. It helped fix, not fix, but, 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 but refocus the interest in what should have been the third film, probably, conceptually, it came about. So, honestly, I want to say that the canon that was lost uh, in the third film, it helped recreate new can. It was exciting in the fourth film, but uh, honestly, I, I wanted to see more solutions. They helped inspire the idea that that, that Penhagen creates xenobites when he wants to, which is kind of weird on earth. but they kind of threw away a lot of the the candid if you want it, you can have it type idea if you solve the puzzle box, the, the second film. So we lost a lot of the the, the careful, character development that occurred from the, the second film to create a scenobite everyone's like well what the hell fine just like the second film the third film it wasn't it was just wasn't there right i don't know if there's a short answer to it but the 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 big answer is too that i appreciate the fact they at least explain the box that's a neat idea and that's valuable but it, it's not enough uh
3: i remember um going to see this in the theater Right when directed by Alan Smithy came up, I read flags and then I had to explain to the people who I was with what Alan Smithy was, because that was back when it wasn't really common knowledge. And that right there went to show that there was a lot of studio meddling. And you could tell that there was just parts of the movie that just felt like there should have been something there, but it wasn't. And they cut to something else. Uh, I was... Initially excited because I thought that the concept of Pinhead in space, um, oh, you know, because sooner later. I actually or later, liked the stuff on the space station. That's my favorite part of Bloodline, honestly. Well, that's that's the thing. That's I, I'm saying I did enjoy that. That was what made me excited about it. And I wanted more of that because there's the old thing, you know, whenever slashers do hit a certain point and then they go into space. And this was the point of where they had turned it into a slasher, and then they put it in space. And I thought it was cool, but I thought that the movie just felt uh, like there were too many parts missing, and it just didn't work for me. And I, I, I didn't like it. I don't hate it, but like a, I just, I didn't really care for it all that much.
1: And let's see, you can tell the problems with Bloodline, like Cecil said, when you watch it. Even if you didn't know who Alan Smithy was, the film is a complete mess. This was a textbook example of the studio saying, no, 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 we know how to sell this franchise. Cecil, you brought up how in the third one they clearly wanted to just get to the massacre scene at the bar. That's basically what they did here. In, In Kevin Yager's original rough cut, Pinhead never even showed up until the 40-minute mark. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. He's on the posters. He's the reason people go to see this. He's not going to wait until the 40-goddamn-minute mark to appear in the movie. No. We want him to show up earlier. That, along with a bunch of other problems, caused Kevin Yager to quit, with the movie being a little over 70% completed. So then they brought in Joe Chappelle to finish it. And by finish it, he didn't just complete the other 30% that Kevin Yager didn't, He shot new scenes at behest of Miramax Dimension. What we finally got was not Kevin Yager's film, not Joe Chappelle's film. We got this kind of Cenobite mishmash of both that left nobody happy. Joe Chappelle wasn't happy with the final product. Kevin Yager wasn't happy with the final product. Dimension wasn't happy with the final product. The audience wasn't happy. I guess my question to you guys is, why not just let Yager do it then? If you had to, they had to have known. And I'm, this is nothing against Joe Chappelle, but his directing style being so different that these two things essentially would not cut together.
2: At that point, you there was no way to remedy the situation. It was kind of what it was going to be. You know, you it became something bigger than itself. I think it's a large part of the problem with most films. I think that it's a great example of, of how things have evolved and in the process we're at today. There's no way to fix it. Can't It just becomes beyond itself, and you become this entity and thing that you just can't make or shape anymore. And it's one of the things I hope that gets remedied in the future with it is that we're able to get back to what makes it great. And we don't have this, we can't make it good anymore problem.
3: You've been on enough sets to know that sometimes long days tempers flare the producer wants one thing the director wants another the actor wants something else and uh things explode and disagreements happen stuff changes on the fly i mean a movie uh, is a living breathing entity it's can change dramatically from its inception to what the final product is and then beyond that even when uh it's edited it can change editing can make such a difference in how the movie is perceived. I've seen so many films where uh, they've had a bad edit and then uh, they'll get a director's cut or it'll be recut and then you know re-released on Blu-ray or DVD and it's a completely different film. This is a case of where I feel that the, you know, the director and the producer were just agreeing and it finally came to a head where he just was like, I'm done and walked off. And then we ended up with this kind of disjointed mess, kind of the reason why there's a lot of famous directors who you'll see them working with the same producers over and over again, because they understand each other. Because you do need both. You need the director for the creative vision and you need the producer to kind of help to keep that creative vision in line. And sometimes each side will cross. And it's just a matter of finding that balance. And in this case, they just couldn't find the balance and the whole thing fell apart.
1: Well I think one of the biggest problems just the with taking the movie as what we got released one of the biggest problems with it is it's boring. I read one review that summed it up quite well. It's like three loosely connected episodes of tales from the dark side that you don't care about any in any way. And that's kind of it. The movie's not edited in any way to make okay what's happening in 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 Renaissance France have some sort of a parallel to what's happening in the present to have a parallel to what's happening in the future it's just this is happening this is happening this is happening deal with it it's bland it's it's a boring film really
2: i don't know if it's entirely completely boring i just think that it it lacks the attention uh it it doesn't it doesn't attack you as a a viewer Just doesn't work as a viewer it, it loses its energy
1: well then this film failed pretty spectacularly and that was the last it was the last theatrically released and, and now when I say theatrically all of the Hellraiser sequels we're going to be talking about now had a technical theatrical release due to their contract usually in between 1 to 7 theaters in the in the entire country so in reality they were all all the sequels after this point, are direct-to-video, but I know I'm going to have some nerd go, No, that played for two days at my theater! Yes, you were one of the lucky ones. It took until 2000, then, for us to get Hellraiser Inferno. Or should I just say Inferno? Because from this point on... None of the Hellraiser films were made as Hellraiser films, or let let me correct that, were written as Hellraiser films. What you're going to come across in the next four movies are standalone horror movie scripts that Dimension had the rights to and bought, and then decided, hey, wait a minute, if we change this little thing around, and we can add Pinhead into this, and we can sell this as a Hellraiser sequel, which, through name recognition alone will sell more DVDs than just a film called Inferno, starring Craig Schaefer as a police detective going through hell. So I think that is incredibly disingenuous right up front from Dimension, because they didn't even care at this point, so if they don't care, why should I? I found Inferno to be a passable, hardcore Twilight Zone episode drug out to 90 minutes that happened to have a cameo by Pinhead in it.
3: If it was a standalone film, if they didn't jam Pinhead in there for probably about five minutes of screen time, it probably would have been a better film. But it just kind of it it felt it felt weird. It felt off, which is kind of how all of these next few films were. It, it just it was weird because it's like, OK, this is kind of going along. And it's this cop thriller. Uh, and oh, now Pinhead's here. And he's saying some lines and and then he disappears and then there's we had uh, Doug Bradley for a day yeah we have Doug Bradley for a day and and then there's this cenobite on two hands that's walking upstairs a lot and and then there's like the there's fingers that are put inside of candles it, it just it it really felt majorly disjointed I thought it was okay like but it, it definitely it's it it wasn't a hellraiser film it was a movie that happened to have pinhead in it
2: I was pissed. The movie was great. It shouldn't have been a Hellraiser movie. <laughs> that's, that's as simple as it gets. Like, why is Penhead in this movie? It doesn't make any sense. Like you said, you said Twilight Zone. I'm like, yep, Twilight Zone episode. Yep, long. Yep, whatever. But the idea was the story was good. I liked the characters. It was interesting. It was very, it kept my attention, which I can't say for what comes after this, obviously, very much so at all. But this movie was like, this is a good movie. But the, why is Pinhead in it for? And as, uh, Cecil said like five minutes, like I say like ninety seconds. He's got an awesome kill in it, but that doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things. This movie was pretty good. The idea was give us a movie. If you if you got a pretty good movie, don't push shoehorn Pinhead into it. Give us a pretty good movie. It'll be way better for it. Why? Well, and
1: in all honesty, we were talking earlier about throwing canon out. This one didn't even try to stay in canon. Not in the least. And it, it was a pretty moderate success, in all honesty. For a $2 million budget, it did it sold a lot of DVDs, which led to the next film, 2002's Hellraiser Hellseeker. You notice they stopped numbering them at this point, by the way, too. Probably and lost the score. More.
2: Lost the score, speaking of which. Sorry to cut you off. But,
1: well, yeah. no, no. Here's 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 my thing about Hellraiser Hellseeker. It has a couple of positives going for it, but far too many negatives. One, you got Ashley Lawrence coming back. That should be a good thing. Unlike Hellraiser three, she actually shot scenes for this movie.
2: Correct, because the the shot that we had in the third film actually was done in the second film with Tony Randall directing it, and it was simply shoehorned into the third film to simply give her a cameo
1: which is just ridiculous. But another positive this one has, I love Dean Winters, so that's a cool thing. And then you've got, I actually think Rick Boda's not a bad director. And I I think this film proved that with a better script, this wouldn't have been as bad as it was. But I want to get your guys' thoughts first before I explain everything that's wrong with Hellraiser
3: Hellseeker. Again, it just had the same problem as the one before it. It felt like a movie that it was it was the, and, and and like we all say with these they were other movies that they decided to capitalize on the fact that they owned the hellraiser license and they shoehorned pinhead and some cenobites in there occasionally this one it it just it worked less for me than uh, the previous film because i don't know it, it felt it felt even more disjointed because of the fact that the cenobites were in there and uh it, it I, I don't know. I, I, I didn't care for it. Like after I watched it, aside from the, the really sexy neighbor, like I didn't remember much of anything about it.
2: It's it's trashable. I mean, it's just gone. It, is, it shouldn't be even in there. I mean, don't watch it. If you're a Hellraiser fan at this point, you, I mean, why waste your time? I mean, I hate to be that blunt and that mean, but it's definitely not what you start off with. It's but like, to be
1: fair, they'll get worse from here.
2: they will get worse they will get much worse
1: i disagree well but then you've got what is i consider to be the biggest betrayal even more so than three and four is what they did to the kirsty character because of the fact that this clearly was not written as a hellraiser movie you have kirsty in here selling out her husband to the cenobites because he cheated on her the kirsty of the first two movies would have never done that. Not even to, I mean, she technically did it to Frank, but he, he, would, he had escaped hell anyway, so she wasn't like damning an innocent man. This was the ultimate betrayal of the Kirsty character. So brutally out of character for her. I'm actually a little offended that actually Lawrence took the role with what it ended up being. That this, they tried to link back to the first two movies, and they just did it, in such a horrendous way it actually taints the first the, the kirsty character from those movies
2: i think i disagree only because we haven't been through her situations <laughs> and I, I thought about that um, we loosely discussed that and the realization was she's dealt with some pretty terrible things this person's put her through some pretty terrible things well she knows something a great solution to that problem let them deal with this person and I think that it's a betrayal to her clarity and her clearness of mind. But I think she's messed up, for lack of a better word or or a vernacular I'd love to use, that she can't judge anymore how to handle it. She's got this great, terrible person to give bad people to. If you knew bad people that were t- treating you bad, wouldn't you give them to the bad person? Maybe?
1: Nothing Dean it? Winters does in this movie is go to hell and be tortured forever for the rest of eternity bad.
2: Sure. But she, but, but this dude messed with the wrong mm-hmm. chick, right? Per se, because, and ideally you wouldn't deal with someone that's dealt with this scenario. Conse- and, at the end of the day, you wouldn't. You deal with someone that's like, oh, well, you're just a bad guy. You wouldn't deal with the guy that's dealt with or girl that's dealt with, you know, this scenario. It's like, oh, this, oh, oops. You know, you wouldn't deal with that.
3: I I think that um, they probably when they wrote it, they thought they were being so clever by having her sell out her husband to the Cenobites. But yeah, it just I I don't know. It it felt it felt like that was just another thing that they put in there to tie in Hellraiser in the end. So, like I said, with with watching it by the end, I just I didn't care. So I really I have no opinion. (laughs) This film was mildly successful. Which led to the creation of
1: Detter, which is one of the stupidest Sir titles I've ever seen. I, I've actually chatted with the guy who wrote the original script for Debtor. And he said about eighty percent of his movie is there on the screen. But his script had nothing to do with the Cenobites. I think it was I think instead of the Lament configuration it was like a cursed dagger that brought demons about and it was just a like a devil worshipping cult instead of a Cenobite worshipping cult. So I don't know if, if if he's acknowledging that 80% of his script is on the screen. Can we really call it a betrayal of the original script or of the Hellraiser franchise? I didn't mind Detter on the surface. It's just kind of dumb.
3: I like Detter out of the four non-Hellraiser Hellraiser movies. I thought this one was the best. Uh, I, like, I love Kari Wurr. And so her character just seemed really interesting and ballsy and it just it with some creative editing you could probably remove hell you know the whole element of hellraiser completely because there there was a lot of the movie that was there where they just weren't there so i i liked it i thought it was cool i i thought that the ending was a tad silly but everything that led up to that point i thought was good I liked the concept of it. I liked the way that they shot it. I thought that the the scene with her in the bathroom where she was trying to get the dagger out of her back was really cool. So it it, it was a movie that I was very much entertained by.
2: I agree completely. I mean, that's one funny part. It's like the, the problems with these Hellraiser films, a lot of times they're actually not bad in movies. You, just get, you get pissed off or irritated by the fact that it's not a very good hellraiser movie but the rest of it is like really well done well acted well performed the looks great the story makes sense but there's pinhead it's like why are you here and i think that's the biggest problem a lot of late films just you just shouldn't be here doesn't make sense replace him and you got great movies it's like good acting and good story it's like why is this guy being put just into here it's like, why why isn't Rod Serling showing up, practically? Like, boom, Rod Serling. It's a quality well, zone.
1: We also do have to point out something you just reminded me of. We can't ignore the fact that Doug Bradley still said yes to all of these. Probably a dump truck full of money was involved, but Doug Bradley was still, he was acting as a whore at this point, I think. Yeah, sure, I'll play Penhead again. It's not even a Hellraiser movie? Eh, screw it.
2: The script wasn't bad, though. The problem is, the script wasn't bad at this point. Like Most of the scripts were good. It's like, why am I not in here enough, is his question. I'm I'm not in here, I'm not involved enough. But the scripts couldn't have been bad, right? I mean, that's that's kind of a key element, in my opinion.
1: But he should have known that this is clearly not a Hellraiser movie, so why is Pinhead in it? It did, it, 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 alright. And then we got the final of the fake Hellraiser movies, Hellraiser Hellworld, which I think is probably the second worst film in the franchise. We'll get to Revelations in a minute, but and I'll explain that. Lance Henriksen is good in this. Doug Bradley is literally a slasher villain in this. He kills people with a meat cleaver. They're not even pretending to try and put Pinhead in these movies anymore, except this one has the weird meta of it. There's an online video game, kind of like World of Warcraft, called Hell World, that's based on the Lamont configuration, that can actually summon Pinhead, but then we find out at the end of the movie, Lance Henriksen actually did most of this stuff, and they were hallucinating Pinhead and the Cenobites, but then Pinhead and the Cenobites actually encounter Lance Henriksen and cut him up in the film's one good scene, and I'm lost. I'm lost at what the hell this movie was supposed to be.
2: I can't disagree. It's like you got you got Lance in there, but the rest of the movie just like blah. Like literally, like okay, here's something good, and it's solid and it's awesome, and then the rest of it's just pure diarrhea. And I'll just leave it at that.
3: Yeah, this one, like I said, this is the one where between eight and four, I'm not sure which one I'd like least. Because uh, this one, aside from Lance Henriksen. Eh, I, I, and the I, ending I, felt like a cheat too, didn't the it? The ending was a big cheat that they were hallucinating it, that it wasn't really uh, the Cenobites. But then to have Lance Henriksen open it at the end, and then they, sh- uh, I'm like, why did he do this? <laughs> but, but it also, so they could, I mean, it was cool, like him getting cut up. It was well done, and it kind of reminded me a little bit of Alien, which I think they might have been trying to do an homage of or aliens, rather, where the way his body was kind of positioned, it just it didn't make
1: sense. It was it. Nothing in this makes sense. So so, okay, did the other movies actually happen in this continuity or are they movies in this because there's a video game based on them? I'm confused at this. Where does Hellraiser and the box fit? Is it that this is a creation from the movies, or did all of these things happen and we just haven't gotten to the future parts of the fourth film yet? Do you see why this makes no sense?
2: That you—that's what you—that's true. I'm a, I'd validate your statement. It would have to be part of before that moment. Only way it makes sense. Otherwise, it's stupid. <laughs> no, Sorry. it's
1: stupid regardless. But. <laughs> And now this was the last of the non-ones for a while in 2005. Franchise really went into hibernation. Now, all of a sudden, then we come up to 2011. Now, Dimension has been trying to do a Hellraiser remake forever. Way before the non-Hellraiser, Hellraiser sequels, they've been threatening a Hellraiser remake. They were about to lose the franchise because they had not made a movie in X amount of time, so the rights were going to revert to... I don't know if it was Clive or whoever technically owned them. So they had to make, they basically had to sh** a Hellraiser film out and do it fast. So what they did was they made Hellraiser Revelations on the cheap, on the very, very cheap. They basically handed a, a small check out to director Victor Garcia and said, literally, this will be on DVD in two weeks. Start shooting. If that tells you the quality of this thing. Now, that said, I brought up Doug Bradley before. Doug Bradley refused to be part of this one. He said after he read the script, he wasn't going to do it. So not only is this the first time Pinhead's ever been played by someone other than Doug Bradley, but when Doug Bradley, who starred in five, six, seven, and 8, says, this is really bad, I'm not going to do it, and the dump truck full of money is not going to help, that's a sign that you don't make it. Full disclosure, I haven't seen this one yet, so I'm not reviewing it. The trailer was absolutely hilarious, and I don't think that was supposed to be. I'm going to step aside for this one since I haven't
3: seen it and leave it open to you guys. I had watched the beginning of it a while ago, and it opens, it's a found footage film. And so I had only made it about maybe 5-10 minutes in, and I shut it off. And um, I had come back to it because we were doing this retrospective, because I'm like, all right, let me watch the rest of it, see how it is. And after that opening bit, it goes into being a regular movie. It's no longer a found footage film. And I was surprised. I was like, okay. And to be perfectly honest, I was expecting this to be completely terrible. I mean, with the, with the turnaround uh, of how fast it was put into production and gotten out the door, and how much money, you know, how little money went into it, I was expecting something horrendous. And really, I liked it. It's it's not a good movie. It's not a movie that I would recommend. But I was kind of surprised at how much I did enjoy it. Like, I, I watched the whole thing. It did a much better job of being a Hellraiser movie. I think maybe I was tainted because I had just watched... Uh, you know, 5, 6, 7, and 8 in a row, or uh, yeah, 5, 6, 7, and 8 in a row, and then went on to 9, and 5, 6, 7, and 8 were other movies that they threw Hellraiser into, and this was actually a Hellraiser movie with the concept of Hellraiser than the previous four films did. Actually, than probably the previous six films did.
2: I uh, I fast-forwarded through it to watch it. Um, I suffered through it, I guess I would say.
1: Well, and then there's also now prior to this there were various fan films and things like that and darren has it's not out yet but as i mentioned at the beginning of this darren has would you call it a fan film a tribute film what would i be fair to call to call i
2: it? I, I use the word tribute uh fan film tends to be too chaotic fan films to be like a random has has chance i i too much direct ties and too much direct effort to be able to do a tribute to someone like I'm trying to make it valid I've seen too many fan films they're not good for Hellraiser honestly (laughs) to end out the show tell us a little bit about so our my our goal my goal so I have known uh Tony Randall since about 2008 and I'd always I'd known he has been director of Hellraiser 2, Hellbound Heart. Um I helped him solve some technical issues with the film he was uh, editing at that time. And I was like, well, I'd love to do something with that, even if I'm not officially doing it. It's an amazing story. And um, a friend of mine had set up uh, a thing called suspension, human suspension, where they put hooks in your skin and they suspend you with it. It's pretty cool. And it, like, I know the story to tell now. It took four years to get to this point. I had the in and out and everything else. I didn't have the middle part to tell the story. It's like, we got to tell a story. So, the guys that I worked with to do my feature inspectors, some of them came on board and said, that'll be, I'll, let's do it. And we met some other individuals that were huge fans in the Chicagoland area. So, let's do this. Let's make it cool. Let's do it right. So, I said, well, let's. here's the story we got to tell. How do we do this? It's got to have all the canon of the first four films, the best parts of the canon um it was hard honestly because i had i watched these movies repeatedly and feel like everyone kept telling me you're crazy it's like why are you watching this stuff it's like well because i got to tell a good story when can people
1: see it now cecil alex and i all saw a rough cut but it was far from done so uh, apparently you've still got a lot to to work on with this when will it be released and i'm assuming youtube or just straight on your website
2: Absolutely. We'll have a version uh, that will be premiering Gen Con in Indianapolis in about three weeks uh, for their, their convention. It won't go public, that version. And then we'll have another version that will go absolutely public in uh, Halloween. And it'll go live online that weekend during Halloween. We're working right now with Carmike, hopefully, theaters to get the film back out, the first two films back out into theaters for that weekend. And we're hoping to have our, our short play along with it and do a premiere here in Chicago. Do some neat things with that. So, you know, our, you know, people say like, well, legally this and that, but we want people to see the film. We want people to see the first two films. We're trying to make something to promote that, because I think it's a great story, a, good, a, a really great story that, honestly, a lot of current-day people aren't seeing. So our short is a tribute. We're trying to get people to get back and fascinated with the idea of something that can be Hellraiser-ish, that we've lost that for
3: a little while. And it's trying to bring that back, is my opinion. So – Where can people find Cecil T. Robot? You can find me at goodbadflix.com as well as geekjuicemedia.com. You can find me on uh, Facebook,
2: darren.orange on Facebook. You can find me there as well as www.r88s.com and uh, on YouTube as well.
1: You can find me, 1201beyond.com. Contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. No more tears. It's just a waste of such good suffering.
0: Not summoned by hands, but by desire I will make you exquisitely suffer Dreams are fleeting Only is baby. Human dreams Which fits our ground for the to Do I look like Someone who cares what fucking got me Please. It's a waste of good suffering. You summoned us this night. The puzzle box shining so bright. Now you must come with us. Taste our pleasure, pain and lust. Nobody escapes us. We've eternity to know your flesh. No faithless hope in life. We'll tear your soul apart tonight. Demons to some. Angels to others We have such sights To show you But trick a second Child And your suffering Will be Legendary Even in hell Dreams are fleeting Only night There's human dreams. For the sea to me Do I Look like Someone who cares What fucking God thinks, baby No Tears please. a waste of Good suffering You summoned us this night The puzzle box Shining so bright Now you must come with us Taste our pleasure Pain and lust Nobody escapes us We've eternity To know your flesh No faithless hope in life We'll tear your soul.